This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Well, I'm alone today on the podcast because Vanessa could not join first time, I think, in two years that I'm solo. But I'm not really solo because I've got an incredible guest, Jennifer Fink, who's the author of a book called Building Boys, Raising Great Guys in a World that Misunderstands Males. Jennifer is someone I actually met during early pandemic days. She very kindly invited me onto her podcast. And she has built a world of information about what it means to raise boys and why raising boys can look different than raising girls or kids on the gender spectrum. She has a website called buildingboys.net. Her podcast is called On Boys. And her first book, because this is not her first book, was The First Time Mom's Guide to Raising Boys. What I love about Jennifer is that when you go even further back into her history, she was trained and practiced as a nurse. And you'll hear in the way she addresses her parenting advice and the way she collects data and information about what it is to grow up male, she does it through a very research-based, biological lens, but one that also is incredibly caring, incredibly humane. She's a nurse and that is an incredible talent and skill set that she brings to the work that she does. So I hope you enjoy Jennifer as much as I did. Jennifer, I am so excited to welcome you to the Puberty Podcast. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks, Cara. You know, it's very unusual podcast recording because I never do this without Vanessa. Vanessa is, you know, the 
like the right half of my body at this point. But Vanessa is out today. And I'm not going to lie, I'm very excited about having you to myself. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start there. And what I want to start with is just a personal thank you for a book that's incredible. I don't underline books. I mean, I don't know why. I was the kid with 17 different highlighter colors when I was in high school. Yeah. And so you go from all to none or none to all. And I like never, ever put another mark in a book ever again after I was done with my schooling, except your book. Your book, I found myself underlining and starring and asterisking and writing notes in the margins. And what was so surprising about that is that I've written a book on a similar topic. So you, right. would think, you would think this would not be super interesting to me. You literally wrote a book about decoding boys. And here I am. I'm like, wow, did not know that. Did not know that. So I'd love to just jump in to yeah. what you have created. But I'd like to start with a little description from you okay. of your personal and professional credentials that led you down the path to writing this book? Uh, Life is so interesting, isn't it? My professional background in terms of education is I'm a registered nurse. That is what I went to school for, what I got my degree in. I ended up having children. Uh, My first child was a boy. I rediscovered my interest in writing shortly after he was born. I think for a lot of us, when we become parents, We become brave in a way that we hadn't been before, and that happened for me. And also, I was trying to keep him busy, as you do with your children, in the library, pushing him around. And I saw this book called Handbook of Freelance Writing, which I didn't know was a thing or a career, and it told me how to do it. So I got into writing, had a second child. He was also a boy. It was about the time they were maybe four and two-ish that I realized I had no idea what I was doing. I did not understand them. I didn't know why they did the things they did. They would like they'd sit there perfectly happily and content, it seemed. And then for no apparent reason, nothing changed in the exterior environment. Nobody said something. They would randomly jump up and start chasing each other and jumping <laughs> on furniture. And my then husband, their dad, would say, yep, that's normal. Wait, it is? Why? I don't understand. So to survive my own life, I started learning more about boys. I was freelance writing. I had another child that was also a boy, more freelance writing, another child that was also a boy. So I have four sons. As many writers do, I combined the personal and the professional. I started learning more about boys, writing more about boys and parenting for magazines like Parents, started a blog that began as blogging about boys, eventually rolled over into building boys started a podcast about boys, continued raising boys, and all of this 20 plus years of experience gelled together and came together in this book. I love it. I love it. I was lucky enough to be on that podcast a couple of years ago, which is when we first met. It was a fun experience and it was early COVID and it was a fun experience. So that's saying something. It was a very COVID safe experience, but with the Zoom recording, which we were already doing, right? We were so ahead of our time. I know. I know. I may have told this story then, so forgive me if I have, but I had this family in practice who I would take care of occasionally. I was sort of the backup doctor. They had a primary doctor in the Mm -hmm. practice and I didn't really know them that well. And they called one night when I was on call and the mom said, 
you know, oh, my child is 105 fever. And I said, oh, okay, I don't want you to worry. And she goes, oh, you don't remember me. I'm the mom with six boys. And I said, <laughs> oh, I remember you. And she said, yeah, I'm the one who had three boys and went for the girl and got triplet boys, which was God's way of telling me I was really meant to be a boy mom. And I just thought, this mom is fantastic. So she really wasn't calling for medical advice with six kids of her own. She was really just calling to say, I'm I'm just phoning it into the pediatrician. I know what to do. I'm it also letting you know moment. so that you are aware so that if the next <laughs> thing happens, yes. come on the journey with us. Exactly. So with those creds, you created really a tangible version of what you've been putting out into the world for a very long time. Yes. And in the very first chapter of this book, you dive into why it's important to know that kids are in puberty. And you actually express surprise at learning that the average age for boys to enter puberty is between nine and 10. I learned that from you. Uh, well, I was very excited to see that. I was <laughs> like, oh my goodness, here I am in your book. Can you talk about, because this is the puberty podcast, I'd love yeah. to start with where you start in the book, which is why is it important for adults, not just parents, but any adult in the lives of these kids to recognize that they're in it? Because sometimes we get pushback on this, like, okay, fine, uh... but what does it matter? So why is it important? You know, as you ask that question, I realize that a lot of us as adults and when we become parents are thinking about puberty, we're really focused on like sexual development. Mm -hmm. Because for many of us, if we got any puberty education at all, that was it. You know, boys go in a room, girls go in a room and we talk about those changes and how not to have babies. And sure, that is an important part of puberty. But as you well know, like puberty affects your whole entire being. It affects your brain. It affects your emotions. It affects your thinking. It affects how you move through the world. And so as adults, we kind of need to know where our kids are to interact with them most effectively. If I say it this way, it will make perfect sense, right? If you try interacting with a 16-year-old, like you interact with an eight-year-old, you are going to fall flat and misfire almost all the time because you're not respecting where they are developmentally speaking. And so when our kids start puberty and as they move through puberty, it is developmentally normal and it is developmentally natural to have a little bit of a pull away from the parents, a little bit of a push towards the peers, to want to have a little bit of that alone time and reflective time and to want to be more independent and autonomous. Totally normal, totally appropriate. But if we don't know that and we are still trying to parent them like they're eight or like they're six, there's going to be a lot of conflict, a lot of confusion, a lot of missed opportunities for connection and supporting their development. I mean, it's almost like we have to throw out the chronologic stuff entirely. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I get so frustrated by this focus on chronological sorting and expectations in our society because. A 10-year-old is not a 10-year-old is not a 10-year-old. They can all be in really different places. And it's so important to look at the child in front of you. What does that child need? That's right. And they're so, they're informed by all of these different things, right? Their personality and their temperament and the environment in which they're being raised and their resources. They're all these, these mm -hmm. very obvious things and these very subtle things. One of the big drivers of sort of where they are maturationally is also their sibling group, right? Yes. So that influence, a fourth child is typically not in the same place at a given age that the first child was. No. 
And I can speak to that. I mean, it, it's as simple as, so my oldest is now 25, my youngest is 17. So to give you a frame of like when I was parenting, when my oldest was a kid, I could keep him restricted to PBS kids for a very long time because he was the oldest. But as he grew, so did his interest. And so, you know, they're moving on to Nick Jr. and the Disney show in the Hannah Montana and Sweet Life of Zach and Cody show. And so my, you know, three, four-year-old is watching stuff where there's, you know, the sassy tweens because this is what's happening in my house. Now, the beauty of this, the beauty of this was because my youngest son watched his older brothers go through puberty, he knew what to expect, even in terms of like the emotional turmoil and some of the crabbiness, which was great. Like he got to see all of that. And so he sort of, knock on wood, he's 17, he's still got a ways to go, but his journey through puberty was a little less dramatic, I think in part because he knew what to expect. Right. I mean, it's incredibly circular, frankly, yeah. that he understood what all adults need to understand, which is there's this shift, this chemical shift in the body and the brain, and it changes the way you feel and it changes the way you act. And therefore, yes, if you know about it, right, if you can name it, you can manage it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you or someone you love have smelly feet? Well, this is for you. We made magical socks. We did. The magic is zinc. With zinc around, bacteria cannot grow. And if bacteria cannot grow, well, then there are no bacteria to eat the sweat. And if there's no bacteria to eat the sweat, then there's no off-gassing. And if there's no off-gassing, then there's no smell. That's how um socks work. Check out the link in our show notes or go to myoomla.com. After we've been Zooming all day, we both hit the same wall. We forgot about dealing with dinner. But given what we do for a living, we know the importance of feeding ourselves and our families well. And we want it to be yummy. So we're psyched to have found Factor. Factor's chef-created, ready-to-eat meals show up at our front doors. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, Cara goes vegan and veggie while I opt for a whole variety since I have so many kids. Two-minute prep gets us restaurant-quality full meals, snacks, and smoothies. And Factor is less expensive than takeout. And because flexibility is key, you can choose anywhere from 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor meals require no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup. Our kids are thrilled by the lack of dishes. So get started today and have a week of meals ready to go, taking the dinner prep pressure off. Head to factormeals.com slash puberty50. Use the code puberty50 to get 50% off. That's code puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50. We know it's really tough when a kid's skin is breaking out for the first time or the hundredth time, but now there's an effective product that can help. It's called Phyla, and it's clinically proven to fix acne by targeting the bad bacteria on the skin without eliminating all the good bacteria. This rebalances the skin's microbiome, treating existing breakouts and preventing new ones. Phyla's active ingredient is a probiotic isolated from the skin of healthy, 
acne-free individuals. This means Phyla can stop acne before it starts by eliminating bacteria in the pores without irritating or drying skin. And Phyla is safe for kids of all ages. Dermatologists recommend this easy three-step system. Just cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. My own kids actually use this product. They love it because it works so well. Get 25% off your first order of Phyla with the code PUBERTY. Go to phylabiotics.com and type in the code PUBERTY at checkout. Link is in the show notes to get started. Okay, so let's get to this amazing fact that I did not know. The first big underline in my book. I'm really curious what it is. How does testosterone inhibit crying? Because I was fascinated by that. So you describe the fact that as testosterone levels rise, there is this physiologic phenomenon. And I've never read about this before. And I am amazed by it, that the crying response is actually turned down. And prolactin, which goes up in females, that actually turns it up. And then you go on to describe the endorphin release that we feel when we cry and this incredible connection between the bodies that are able to cry and have an endorphin release and move on versus the bodies that cannot cry as easily or are socialized not to cry as easily who don't have the endorphin rush. So can you get into that? Because that's amazing. And it's exactly this same conversation of why it's important to recognize the hormonal takeover. A lot of people now realize, you know, this whole like boys and men generally are socialized to not cry. We have all heard people say, don't cry, man up, boys don't cry. We've heard that forever. And so we tend to think that's the only thing that's going on. But there is some biology to this. There is more to it. So as you referenced, generally speaking, guys' tear ducts are differently sized than women's. And because of the testosterone, they are less likely to produce and cry the tears. And to me, this was absolutely fascinating to realize there's this biological underpinning. Now, I don't understand all of the science behind this. Uh, Biochemistry was my hardest subject in school. So I can't get into that. That's for somebody else. But realizing as women, you know, you know, the relief that you feel after a cry, like it just moves through you. Without having easy access to those tears, that release isn't available to you in the same way. And I spoke with some people, including a therapist that works regularly with men, and he talked about how in cultures throughout the world and throughout history, when men are grieving, historically, they're given a task. They do something. Their bodies are in motion. And that for males... This can be a way to kind of get that similar release that women often get through tears. Again, these are really, really, really broad generalizations. Women can find this release through movement too. And a lot of us naturally will seek it out, go for a walk, go for a run, exercise. But understanding that can open your mind to sort of accept what you see with your son. Right. So it's you know, I think we're all quick to point to the socialization, which bears a lot of responsibility. Absolutely. And I think we have a lot of work to do there, right? Because Absolutely. Un- undoing that socialization is extraordinarily important. There's so many people who are working so hard to get rid of those terms like man up and, yes. and boys don't cry and all of these, right? But 
you are right. If there is an underlying biological phenomena, then we need to know so that we can, you know, it's all about expectations, right? It's not wrong. Your son is not wrong right? if he doesn't cry right. in response to something sad or tragic. And your daughter as well. And yes. someone on the gender spectrum as well, right? So these, yes. these stereotypes that we are painting have some biological underpinning, but of course there are kids from every bucket who yes. check all the boxes that we're describing about another bucket, right? Absolutely, so, absolutely. And I want all people who can cry, who feel tears to coming to their eyes, I want them to be free to release them. I don't want them to feel like that is a shameful or a bad thing or a failing, which is how it was painted for boys for a long time. Right. So let's now extend the conversation into the treacherous waters of gender, right? Mm -hmm. You point to all of these biological and physiological processes that are chemical. And yet we live in a moment where we are also looking at gender through a very, very different lens. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, given the work that you do, what do people misunderstand about males? What mm. do we need to hold on to in terms of, you know, comparing groups based on biology? And what should we let go of? Well, that's a big question. I know. Um, <laughs> See, just Vanessa's solve the not problems here of the world. in, uh, you know, I just like whack it with the right? hammer. All right. I think when I think of the things that people misunderstand about males, I see two big buckets and I do see one as more biologically focused and one more uh, socially focused. Biologically, biologically, males develop at a different pace than females. And most of us do know this if we stop and think about it. If you picture a group of 16-year-olds, most of the time, the 16-year-old females look much more adult-like and even behave much more adult-like than their 16-year-old male peers. And that's not just socialization. There's some of it in there, but females, generally speaking, develop more quickly than males. As adults, we get to more or less the same place. You know, I think that this idea that, you know, males are better at this and females are better at this, that's sort of shaky science. But what we do know is that as we're developing in males, generally speaking, their gross motor skills mature before their fine motor skills, which is part of why for most young boys, it's a lot easier for them to run around and kick a ball than hold a pencil and print their name neatly. The parts of the brain that handle language mature more quickly in girls than in boys, which is part of why so many young boys struggle with reading and writing, while girls don't in the same way. By adulthood, we get to the same place. But if we don't respect those developmental differences, we can get very, very, very frustrated with our boys. Right. Especially because if we think about all the social reinforcers, right? So let's talk about or think about first graders yes. sitting in the classroom, right? Or some large number of them not sitting because right. they they are more gross motor oriented, less fine motor oriented. Their metabolic needs are different. They need to get up. They need to move their bodies. The vast majority of these kids who are motor inclined are male, not all of them. There's a large number of females mm -hmm. in that group as well. But those kids 
are not doing what you're supposed to be doing in school to achieve. What you're supposed to be doing, right, is sitting. And so if you already are growing your gross motor skills before you're growing your fine motor skills, and you're a little bit behind the kids who are able temperamentally to sit and to, I'm putting air quotes here, focus, whatever that means at that age, then, you know, those kids are getting all these positive reinforcers. The kids who are moving are getting all these negative reinforcers. And even if their development caught up the next week, they would already be bucketed, right? right? You're the kid who's not successful at school, which follows them. So adults look at them that way and they internalize that. They internalize that. And, you know, frankly, if you are going to a place where you are frequently, you know, getting in trouble or not getting approval and you can see other people getting it, you start to feel bad about yourself. And why in the world would I want to keep going to that place? And so as a parent, I can't independently shift school culture. I can't independently shift where we're at with our academic expectations. I have been pushing back at these for, you know, 20 years. But it strikes me that this is a form of reverse sexism, right? Or sexism, right? And I say reverse because I was raised to believe that sexism is only unidirectional, right? And it's not. That's not a fair way of framing it. Sexism is, you know, alienating any gender is sexist, right? Right. right. But it strikes me that if the majority of kids who at young ages are going to be sort of targeted with a negative reputation, mm-hmm. right? You can't do school very well. If it's all There would boys, be attention to it, I think, in a different way if it was yeah. girls right now. Uh, that's and interesting. I, yeah. That's interesting. This is a very interesting place to be. I mean, I think we are approximately the same age. And so when we grew up, We heard a lot of encouragement for girls and girls can do and be anything. And that was so needed. It is so needed. It continues to be needed. I'm very aware of the ways in which my gender has shaped and continues to shape my life. I'm aware of those things. At the same time, I don't think we've had as much awareness about how boys and men can also experience sexism, can also be harmed by stereotypes and by misunderstandings. And I think we have to start talking about that because what happens, especially this is when I really became aware of boys' issues, was when my boys got to school age. And you start getting calls, your son's getting in trouble, and you think that there is something wrong with your son. You think there's something wrong with your parenting. What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And it's not until you start talking to other people that you realize that, oh, so this is happening with most of the other boys too. Huh. And we have to have those conversations so we can better help our boys. And so we can just raise this awareness and start changing things, frankly. These boys who are moving, these children who are inclined to learn via gross motor skills, they are eager to learn. They're so eager to learn. But for them at that moment, sitting down and using a pencil is not the best way to do it or a keyboard or a computer. Well, and that gets to something that you talk about often and write about, which is fighting (laughs) and physical play as one way that they do do it. Can you describe what you mean? Anybody who has more than one, you have certainly heard bickering and it has likely turned physical at some point. And if you have two or more boys in your house, I'm willing to say it has certainly happened. 
And you also know as a parent, you hear them get started and you know it's going to end in tears. You just know it's going to end in tears. And no matter what you say, it's going to end in tears. What I have learned, first of all, is that I have three brothers. So, okay, right? I, like you're, I'm flashing back at the moment. Absolutely. I have three brothers. I should say, I'm just going back to the days of being pummeled. Yes. Yeah. Which is apparently their love language. If, uh, you know, maybe. Right? Which <laughs> that sounds weird. And especially coming at this from 2023, you're like, but what about violence? And we're worried about all of these things. So let me put some of you at ease a little bit. Children use roughhousing and physical play. It is a way of learning about boundaries. It is a way about learning how to see and respond to others, both verbal and nonverbal cues. It is a way to learn about their own bodies and what they can do, what they're capable of. It is a way of learning how to interact with people who have different power than you. If you watch, now, yes, I mentioned tears. Often kids learn about boundaries by blowing right past them. Somebody starts crying. Somebody gets hurt. That's really frustrating as a parent when you knew 10 minutes ago this was going to happen. But remember, they haven't been alive as long as you have. They don't know that yet in the same way. So each time, oh, that went too far. And siblings especially, they do know the difference between real hurt and and you're bugging me. And so I'm making a lot of fuss right now. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important distinction. You know, I've many, many, many visceral memories of my childhood with my brothers, whom I love very much and are all very nonviolent people. Let me be super clear. But the Pink Panther movies were really very popular when I was growing up. And there was this whole interplay between Inspector Clouseau and his houseman. Do you remember this whole thing where... It wasn't a big Pink Panther person. Oh, and Spectre Clouseau would come home and he would be attacked, like just like surprise attacked by the guy who kind of took care of his life in his house. And um, my brothers used that as their model for (laughs) how, you know, that would be the surprise attack. That was the fun. And as you say, you know, it was not violence for violence sake. It was, they were testing the boundaries. First of all, it was fun to scare me and to, you know, watch me freak out. The second was they were testing the boundaries. They were testing their physical boundaries. They were testing my physical boundaries. They were testing my parents' limits, right? For the rules and how enforceable were those rules. Consent, right? They were actually towing into some of the very earliest consent lessons because when I would say stop, they needed to stop But then they, over time, learned if I wasn't okay with the aggressive play, a non-enthusiastic yes was as solid as a no. And how amazing for all of us to learn how to communicate clearly, for me to learn and for my brothers, because we're all on both sides of the consent equation at all times. And this was before before we talked about consent oh, education. Oh, yeah, like decades before. And that's a thing where consent education can be a lot easier and less scary than many of us think of it as. Because when you're talking about consent only in sexual situations, that is an awkward conversation to have. And if we are really honest with ourselves, adults, a lot of us 
still are blurry on some of those lines. Yeah, we are. It's complicated, but consent around a noogie. Let me tell you, that's great teaching. No, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And I will never forget. We had teacher Tom. Uh, Many people know him. He's an early childhood educator and we've had him on the podcast and he describes wrestling as an act of love between children. And he has noticed he's one of these people who is great at observing the moment and being in that moment and using those observations instead of imposing his own story on what's happening. And he sees how kids, how closely they pay attention to each other when they are roughhousing, when they are wrestling. This is how they learn about limits and boundaries. Yes, it can be loud. Yes, it can be annoying. And it can end in physical altercations that are not okay. It can, it can. So it's not our job to walk away and say, oh, they are wrestling. It's an act of love. I'm out of here. I'm going to go make dinner, right? What should a do or an adult Unless you can make dinner like nearby (laughs) enough that you've got an ear on it. I mean, I, I did this, you know, because you too, as a parent, you develop a finely honed ear for the difference between random bickering and cries of pain. You got it. Or even that sound with your kids when it crosses over from mildly annoyed to... I am going to blow in the next second. Uh-huh. Right. And that's when you need to step in. That's right. That's right. So even sensation seeking play mm-hmm. that doesn't involve siblings, right? Yep. Trying. And as kids get past the grade school years and into middle and high school, we see a lot of this, mm-hmm. right? Especially even, when they're around peers, right? Right. So do you want to describe a little of the, what happens there in the boy world when Mm -hmm. there are peers around? Well, first, as you well know, right? In adolescence, we as humans are more inclined towards risk-taking than at other periods in our life. And that makes sense evolutionarily and biologically because during adolescence is when you frankly got to try things and learn and get ready to go out on your own. So we're inclined to try all kinds of things including some things that I'll just call stupid things because I'm speaking now as a middle-aged woman, right? And no judgment. It really is like a completely non-judgmental adjective. Right? Being used there. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It absolutely is. And boys in particular, when they are surrounded by other boys, are even more likely to take a risk for a couple of reasons. And a main one is that when boys are surrounded by their peers, psychologists have done studies on this and they overestimate the potential benefit of taking the risk and they underestimate the potential risks. So they can see the glory that may accrue to them if they leap off this high bridge into a river And they're not really counting on things like, but I might get a broken neck and be paralyzed the rest of my life. They don't weigh that the same way that we do. And frankly, nor do girls, right? Right. And nor do kids anywhere else on the gender spectrum. But there's something unique about having higher levels of testosterone in the brain that almost, it feels like the volume of rational thought is turned down even lower and not all boys. Some of this, I think, goes to this delay in male development as well, because their impulse control centers are not as fully mature at age 14 or 16 as girls are. Mm 
That's right. That's right. Or said another way, their impulse taking is very good. It's yes. very, very good at being impulsive. Yes. And add in that a lot of boys and other children, but add in ADHD, this may be right. even more delayed. And so you may be more prone to taking risks and being impulsive and let's give it a shot. Right. And and to put a finer point on that, if you look at people who are diagnosed with ADHD or ADD, the majority of them are male in this age range that we're talking about. That may be its own misleading data because mm-hmm. that's who's diagnosed. Right. It does not mean that other brains aren't experiencing intentional issues. They just may look different. And yep. all of this speaks to stereotypes that end up working against boys as they grow up. So what do we do? How do we, in a world where these broad strokes descriptors come from something real? I mean, you know, we see it, we see the behavior, we've experienced it, I've lived it, you've lived it. How do adult around kids who are contending with all this? What do you do? (laughs) Find a good friend that also has teens the same age. Hopefully, if you have boys, it is so helpful to have a friend who also has boys, especially if she's got boys a little bit older than yours. I had a friend like that. Fantastic. Anticipatory guidance is very helpful, specifically in regards to this risk-taking. It gets so scary for parents because as parents, we realize that as they get older, We cannot control all their movement. We were teens. We know that if a teen really wants to do something, they are going to do it. And it doesn't matter what we say. We know that on some level. It does not mean you should not have rules. It does not mean you should not have boundaries. But some level of you knows that. And worries can be very helpful to find safe opportunities for kids to take risks. And what I mean by that is, You have to say yes to some things that maybe your first inclination would be no, because kids do need opportunities to take risks. I've got two boys right now who dirt bike. Dirt biking, you're on a two-wheeled contraption, you're going very fast, you're doing jumps. That is inherently a risky sport, but it is also controlled. They race at a track, there's rules, there's adults, there's when they race at events, there are EMS surrounding the track, right? So there's that. Whereas if I said no to everything that they tried to do, they would still be doing risky things. I just wouldn't know about them. And I think there's increased risk of injury that way and also rupture of the relationship. Because remember, kids are taking risks in part to prepare themselves, to grow, to develop competence and confidence. Jennifer, how much of what you've learned parenting all these boys is actually just mm-hmm. about human nature and not about boys. Oh, most at of it, all. I think. I think most of it is about human nature. I have four brothers, Kara. I have four brothers and a sister. One of my brothers only has a daughter. He's reading my book anyway. He goes, you know, this is pretty much just good parenting advice. And I said, yes, much of it is. Much of this is human nature. And for me, I think I am a better human because I got to have the experience of raising these boys whose experience in the world is very different. I feel I have a more well-rounded experience. Yeah. And it strikes me that you came to this work, you came to this as a nurse. 
And as someone who understands human nature and human vulnerability in a different way, and while that's not necessarily at the top of your list of credentials for having Mm -hmm. created this ecosystem that you have, I put it at the top of your list of credentials because it's the paradigm that you use to think through how you solve all your problems. And really interesting. Right. And you understand in a way that many people who don't work in healthcare and in particular in nursing, which is a very specific type of healthcare provision, it is hands on. Oh, yeah. On someone's worst day, you are next to them and it is hands on. And I, as I listen to your podcast, as I read what you write, one thing that always comes through for me is your ability at a very, very base level to understand human nature. So to that end, my recommendation is that for anyone who has a child in their life, it's not necessarily a boy child and it's not necessarily their child. Reading Building Boys, really, it's an incredible, it's almost like a sociological study of Mm. what it's like to have raised boys and watched boys grow up and then taken a deep dive into the science. But it's really, it's just about, to me, it was about humans. And I think that's why I learned so much. I learned so much. So thank you for putting this into the world. Oh, thank you. And you know what? It's kind of fun too. There are actual stories in there of things that my boys have done over the years. Obviously not everything because my boys are teenagers (laughs) and young adults. I had to get approval for this stuff. But, you know, you'll you'll get some school stories. You'll get some staying up way too late stories. You'll get a um, failed car purchase story. Uh, It's kind of fun. Yeah. It makes us all feel human, let me tell you. you right. Know, on on a day where you've had maybe a, when I, I read this on a couple of parenting fail days and you made me feel much better. <laughs> yeah. My second son, he's 22 now. He decided finally he would like this book to be a great success because then he can write a book. Something about the true story of the boy that building boys built or something like that. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Oh, that's my so boys want to write their own version because as you can imagine, they don't think I did everything right. No. I know. Shocking. (laughs) Jennifer, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the Puberty Podcast. Thank you for putting your work out into the world. We will link in the show notes to where everyone can find you, your podcast, your website, your book, and I hope you'll come back. Oh, absolutely. I would love it. Thank you so much. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast, and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com yet. 
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.